This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. This episode is about chartreuse, monks with secret recipes, and hearing God's call. What if I told you there's a liqueur that's only made in a monastery in the mountains of southern France, and that it's one of the most complicated and mysterious drinks in the world? It's called chartreuse. People are probably more familiar with the color chartreuse, which comes from the drink. In fact, chartreuse is the only liqueur in the world to have a color named after it. The name comes from La Grande Chartreuse, the head monastery of the Carthusian order located in the Chartreuse Mountains of southern France. It was founded a thousand years ago by Saint Bruno, and it's probably the strictest religious order in the church. The monks live mostly as hermits. They never eat meat, they hardly ever speak. The monastery is quite remote, and no visitors are allowed. They haven't changed much over the centuries. Their logo, which is on every bottle of Chartreuse, shows a cross on top of the world. And their motto says, the cross stands while the world turns. I wouldn't say chartreuse is one of the most popular drinks in the world. My sense is that most people have never heard of it. It's widely available, but would be more for a specialty market. Its flavor is certainly unusual and memorable in a good way. A combination of warm spices and herbs that's complex, and strong. Chartreuse is not for the faint-hearted. This liqueur was definitely designed to take the chill off cold winter nights, and I'm sure the mixture of ingredients has some medicinal properties as well. So what are those ingredients? Well, we have absolutely no idea. The formula for chartreuse is one of the most closely guarded secrets in the world. Only two monks at a time know the full recipe, and they're not talking. We know that it consists of 130 alpine herbs, that the recipe is over 400 years old, and that the color is completely natural. That's all we know. An ancient order of monks in a remote mountainside monastery with a secret elixir has all the trappings of a best-selling novel, sort of Umberto Eco meets Dan Brown. But this is real life, and these are real men who have committed themselves to Jesus in the most radical way, and who support themselves by making this mysterious and intoxicating drink. And I'd venture to propose that chartreuse itself offers some insight for us and our spiritual thirst. 130 Ingredients We don't know what they are, but I would imagine that some feature much more prominently than others. That's true in any recipe. Banana bread is going to feature a lot of bananas. Maybe that comes to mind because it was a big thing for a while during the lockdown, when everyone was trying to use up their overripe bananas. I was scrolling through recipes, and a number of them call for a teaspoon of cinnamon or vanilla extract. 
Could you make banana bread without either of those? Sure. But it would still be missing something. It wouldn't be quite complete. The recipe includes them for a reason. Now, banana bread has maybe seven or eight ingredients. Chartreuse has 18 times that. I can only imagine that in the movie version, many of them are not even supporting roles, but cameos. They might seem insignificant compared to some of the star ingredients, but it's the finished whole that counts. And chartreuse, as we know it, wouldn't be itself without them. There's an important truth here for us when it comes to the spiritual life. Every one of us is called to be holy, to be a saint. We think of the saints as the ones with halos who have churches named after them. But the saints are the souls in heaven. Yes, the famous ones whom we know are there, but also all the countless others whom we hope to join there. Most of us won't be canonized or officially declared a saint. We won't have churches named after us or be depicted in stained glass windows. And that's okay. We still have a role to play. St. Therese of Lisieux writes about this quite beautifully. Therese is one of those Hall of Famers, one of the most beloved saints in the world. She was a nun in the early 20th century, who died at the age of 24. She wrote only one brief story of her life, but it's so rich in its insights that she's a doctor of the church, someone who has significantly contributed to the church's teaching and understanding. Therese compares this variety of souls to a garden. Sure, she says, a garden has its showpieces, the perfect rose or rare orchid that gets everyone's attention. But we can't all be orchids or roses. That would make the garden monotonous. There are also the humble wildflowers along the path, each beautiful in its own way, that add to the variety and please the gardener. Therese was content to be that humble wildflower, overlooked by many. But quietly enhancing the garden and adding to its beauty. St. Therese is widely known by her nickname, the Little Flower. She offers us an important reminder. We can often think that holiness is for the roses and orchids, for those who perform miracles or endure tremendous hardship or persecution, who have visions and seem so holy. And then there are the rest of us. And since we don't perform miracles or have visions, we are off the hook. But that's wrong for a number of reasons. In the first place, the saints weren't born with a halo. They were real people who had the same weaknesses and flaws, struggles and temptations that you and I have. But they never gave up. They kept relying on God's grace, knowing that holiness isn't about attaining perfection, it's about striving for it. But there's another reason why the saints should encourage us. Even if they seem so much holier than we are. Think of a little kid who wants to grow up to be a Major League Baseball player. He watches the All Stars, knows about the Hall of Famers, collects their baseball cards, imitates their swing. Is he ever going to be as good as these professionals? Probably not. But his admiration for and imitation of them makes him a better ball player than he would have been otherwise. That's what the Saints do. They set an example, a high standard of excellence, and they show us that whatever our state in life is, holiness is possible. They're like a prism that refracts the light of Christ into all its multicolored splendor. <laughs>
casting its light on every land and age. We're part of that prism too. We too are called to reflect Christ, to become another Christ by the life we lead. Whatever our state in life, whatever our age or income, job or health or talents, we are called to do everything for the glory of God. Mother Teresa famously encouraged people to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. It's a variation on St. Therese's little way. Holiness isn't just in the exotic or extreme. It's also in doing the everyday, routine, mundane stuff, but doing it perfectly, with love, as an offering to God. Sometimes that's even more challenging than martyrdom, because it doesn't feel very heroic or holy. But that wild flower has a part to play. That small ingredient is part of the recipe. All of that quiet, unseen holiness requires faith. We have to trust that God sees it and loves it, that it is precious to Him, even if it seems insignificant to us. Sometimes you read about medieval churches that undergo a restoration, and the scaffolding is put up hundreds of feet in the air to repair or replace stones that have been there for 800 years. And some of these stones are carved into perfect flowers. Sometimes there's a small inscription to the Blessed Mother. Oftentimes it's just a stone perfectly chiseled, no corners cut. Now, these stones are far out of anyone's range of vision, soaring overhead, often tucked away in some corner. It would have been easy to do a less than perfect job. No one would have noticed. But God noticed, and it was done for Him, a small gift of great love. It reminds me of the Christmas carol, The Little Drummer Boy. I have to admit it was never one of my favorites. I always found it kind of plodding and melancholic. But it really speaks to this point. The boy wonders what he can possibly give the newborn Christ. I have no gift to bring that's fit to give our king. So he gives all he has, and he gives it all he has. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. Then he smiled at me. Mary smiled too. Yes, like any mother, Mary loves every gift, however poor and simple, when it's made and given with love. Every humble drawing is a masterpiece worthy of the refrigerator door. We are called to give God not just our talents or creations or everyday tasks, but our very selves, our whole life, because we're part of the recipe, a part set aside just for us. How we live out that call to holiness is our own individual vocation. For those not familiar with the term, vocation comes from the Latin verb to call, and we use it to speak about what God calls us to in life. We hear the term most commonly used in regard to priesthood or the religious life, what we usually mean when we speak of a special call from God. That's not the only vocation. Most people aren't called to priesthood or religious life. The most common state to which most people are called is marriage. Marriage is a natural call. After all, the desire to propagate the species is hardwired into us. But Jesus raised it to the dignity of a sacrament infusing it with the grace needed to live out married life 
with all its demands. And then there's the supernatural call, when God invites us to give up something good for something better. Religious life is called the state of perfection. It's the highest call. When we hear that, it can sound confusing and it's easily misunderstood. It does not mean that religious, those who are in consecrated life, who take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean a priest or religious is holier than a married person. (laughs) My goodness, far from it. It does mean that that state in life can more readily lead that person to perfection because it's devoted exclusively to God and the things of God. That's why virginity has always been treasured by the Church as an expression of total dedication to God, of an undivided heart. It also offers a foretaste, here and now, of what all of us will be like in heaven, where there is no marriage and everyone is devoted entirely to the love and worship of God. St. Paul writes about this in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says that the unmarried man or woman is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please Him. The married person, though, has to be concerned more with the everyday things of this world. Job and family responsibilities, paying the bills, putting food on the table, and a thousand other demands. The funny thing is, marriage and virginity complement each other, and they rise and fall together. Both demand generous self-sacrifice. And a decline in respect for one always accompanies a decline in respect for the other. People often talk about a vocations crisis, meaning a shortage of priests. And that's a real thing. But I think it's a misnomer. It's really a faith crisis. If our churches were packed with young families who had lots of children and none of them became priests or religious, that would be a real conundrum. But marriage and family life itself isn't doing so well these days. Divorce rates remain high while birth rates remain low. And that, of course, has an effect. Priests don't grow on trees or come from factories. They come from families, who are the first and most important teachers of the faith. It's where children first learn the lessons of generosity and sacrifice that prepare them to make the generous sacrifice of themselves, either to the church or to a future spouse and children. All vocations share that trait of self-sacrifice. People often fixate on priestly celibacy, which means choosing to give up the joys of marriage and family life for the joy of total service to God and His people. But in this respect, the vocations are not as different as they seem. Neither the priest nor the unmarried man is able to be with a woman. The married man is able to be with one. But that doesn't mean the married man can love only one person or that the priest isn't able to love anyone. It's a strange phenomenon in our world today that we equate love with physical intimacy. There are plenty of people who are sexually intimate who don't love each other, maybe even don't know each other's names. And there are plenty of people who are not sexually intimate because they don't want to be or can't be, physically or morally, who love each other deeply. Real love is choosing to die to yourself every day so that the other may grow and flourish. And that's often painful because we all have the selfish instincts of original sin. It's why the cross is the greatest symbol of love in the world, 
Jesus died so that we could live, and he gives us the perfect model to follow. This is the love of a priest who sits through long hours in the confessional, whose patience might be frayed by the many demands for his time and counsel, who might find himself a bit drained after visiting a deathbed, comforting a grieving family in tragic circumstances. This is the love of a father who goes to work tired because he was up all night with a sick child or who'd rather be out on the golf course but sits through this dance recital or that baseball game or the visit to the in-laws because he knows how much it means to them. That self-gift lies at the heart of every vocation. We don't call ourselves. We listen attentively and generously to what God calls us to. He never forces a vocation on us. It's a gentle invitation. But he always knows what's best for us, what will make us happiest, because it will bring us closest to him, the source of all happiness. A wildflower would be very unhappy trying to be a rose. God made it to be the best wildflower it can be, perfect in its own way and pleasing to him. Not everyone is called to be a Carthusian monk, very few in fact. But they, too, add to the rich diversity of the saints. You and I, we don't know the full recipe. We just have our part to play, to be that one ingredient in the mix, to hear that call, to play our best. And God will make something wonderful and unexpected out of it. That will be the celebration in heaven. And we'll all enjoy it, because now we're all in on the secret.